Hey y'all, you're listening to Diagnosing Sitcoms and Movies, the DSM podcast. We help make mental health more comfortable by using Black movies and shows we know and love and culture to remove stigma. So join our convo with your hosts, Courtney Copeland, licensed mental health counselor. And Dr. B, licensed professional counselor. Hey y'all, this week we are talking about the classic nine seasons, 215 episode sitcom, Family Matters, the longest, well, no, the second longest running African-American predominantly cast sitcom. But yes, let's give them all of their flowers because in all of its awesomeness, I did not call this show Family Matters until I was an adult. I just called it Urkel. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Is that why you kept saying I'm watching Urkel? And I'm like, oh, okay, she's watching Urkel. Like, he's in the show. Oh, I didn't understand why you was calling the show Urkel this whole time. Because, you know, I was a kid. Family Matters was too many syllables. (laughs) (laughs) i watch urkel my my favorite is like the the theme song like as soon as you hear it's on it's on and popping and i'm singing all of this the whole song even the piano everything every i love it that's the best theme song ever This day and age To read any good news On the newspaper page And love and tradition Of the grand design Some people say It's even harder to find Well then there must be Some magic clue Inside these gentle walls Cause all I see Is a tower of dreams Real love bursting out of every scene Okay, y'all. So before we get into things, I want to announce that we have another guest. Yay! (laughs) So I would like to um, introduce a little bit and then I'll let you tell us more about you. An awesome, just very intelligent, very knowledgeable, very well-connected and networked professional in the school's counseling profession is Dr. Katie Lee Arshroosh. She is an assistant professor at San Diego State University in the school counseling program. Welcome, Katie. Hey. Thank you. Thank you, Courtney. You know, that's just, that's, that's quite a, that's quite an intro. So I appreciate, I appreciate that. I I appreciate the accolade. (laughs) All facts, all true. (laughs) I'm glad to be here. Yes. It's so nice to have you. Thank so before you. we get started, though, is there anything that you need to shameless plug? Any ways that you want people to look you up, connect with you? Um, anything you're selling or whatnot? <laughs> yeah, so I'm not selling, not selling anything. Um, but uh, <laughs> if you if you if you want to look me up, I am on Twitter. Um, you can just look up my full name, Catherine Lee Asrush, or Dancing Professor One is my um, is my tagline. And uh, you can you can find me there on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Instagram as well, but it's easier to find me on Twitter. So tell me about this dancing professor. Y'all, like, she a whole B girl. <laughs> <Let me> tell you, <laughs> what? 
<laughs> so I don't claim to be a B girl. Um, okay, I'm sorry. But but I used to, so so when I was at SUNY Buffalo, there's a there was a group. There is a group. I still I still think um, hangs out there. Um, but there was a group that used to hang out in the student center and uh, practice every Wednesday nights. And so I, when I would go from class, I just kind of hang around with them and get to know them. And so they were all break dancers. So I just go and just chill with them. And I always like dancing. So it was just nice to nice to have that reprieve during my master's yeah. program at SUNY Buffalo. And then I just I just dance when I um, uh, when I feel like it. And so mm-hmm. I dance in public. I dance on my way to work. I dance on my way back from work when I was taking public transit back in mm-hmm. the day in Saint, when I was in St. Louis. And so I just I just gave myself that title since mm-hmm. to kind of acclimate my students to the fact that they'll see me dancing in the hallway and, you know, mm-hmm. trying to make sure they're not embarrassed of me dancing in the hallway. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I have two nieces and they're actually learning how to break dance right now. And so I don't know what the what the position is called, but she's on her her hands and her body's elevated. She mm-hmm. was so impressed to show me that. I was very happy and excited for her. I was a little concerned for my shoulder if I were to try it. Um, Please don't. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm going to try. I am going to try. Okay, so then let's jump right into it then. Um, I want to know what are you guys' favorite quotables from Family Matters? Guess first. You mentioned you mentioned the um, theme song. And so like mm-hmm. last night when I was thinking about quotes, because I have to admit, like I'm not that great at, at quotes, which isn't that great as me as a clinician, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> remembering quotes, but that theme song, right? It gets stuck in your head. So I'm like, well, what's the, what are the lyrics to that? And so... I looked up the lyrics and I knew them intuitively, but sometimes what my memory serves is inaccuracy from from what actually the lyrics um, are. And so I looked up the lyrics and I don't know, I just thought it was, um, especially the first, the opening paragraph, the opening As stanza. days go by. <laughs> <laughs> well, like even the first, so like starting out, it's a rare condition. condition. Yeah, this day, day and age to read any good news on the newspaper page, love and tradition of the grand design. design. It's even harder to find. <laughs> and so it's like, how does that, thinking about the times, right? So like 1989 to 1997, Eight. 98, this was mm-hmm. airing. And so think about it and, and you think how does this relate to if this show were to be present today how would it how would it relate to today is something mm-hmm. I, I had in mind as well but it just that just resonated with me because that's the one thing we all pick up on like you said which which we can say and we can argue make an argument for um, how a lot of the sitcoms that are out today don't have theme songs like that like mm-hmm. you don't right. um, you don't mm-hmm. see that anymore so why don't sitcoms have theme songs anymore? I know. And it's funny because I was like, I hope Dr. Lee doesn't. Because I was like, do I know that song as much as well as I thought? Because sometimes I be knowing songs and then I put <laughs> words in there that don't belong there. And then years later, I find out, oh, that's actually not the word. So I was like, You're okay. just glad that. <laughs> I'm glad I was right. Because I was like, it's a rare condition. Like, why would they start that out? But hey, that's what I heard. But anyway, <laughs> my favorite quotable, a few favorite quotables, of course, came from, most of them came from Steve. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Irk. Urkel. Irk man. Irk man. <laughs> <laughs> he'll mess up something. He'll be like, look what you did. Look what you did. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I love that one too. 
And I think that was such growth on Urkel's part as far as like, did I do that? He became very reflective. Mm-hmm. And he, he actually owned, you know, maybe I didn't do that. Look what you did. Look what you did. What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then go home, Steve. I mean, that's everybody's line in the Winslow's family. So that was common. It had its like volume. You know, it could be really stern with go home, go home, go home from Carl. Or it could be Laura just like over him and just like go home. Please. <laughs> I used to like when they would say it three times and then he would say, I will not stand here and take that from you. I'm going home. <laughs> right. He has way more self-respect than to deal with that. <laughs> and then my last one, um, when he, he was, I can't remember what he was doing. Oh my God, I can't remember. He, uh, I just remember him saying, I'm coming home, baby. The Earth Man is coming home. What was he doing? Where was he? <laughs> oh, I know he was on um, him, Eddie, and Waldo were on a dating show. And so, like, he got really up close yes, to the camera yes. and was talking to Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming home, baby. I love it. And the younger Urkel was so cute to me. He was so adorable <laughs> rewatching this. So anyway, those are those are a few of my quotables. Okay, so I probably, I have like, I'm sharing all of the ones that you have. Yes, and then I'm going to add. <laughs> I used to like, of course, the did I do that? But um, when he would be talking to Laura and she would say something that's like not evil and he would be like, I'm wearing you down, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and so I like that. And then also, Waldo, sup? Right. <laughs> and then everything was cool. Cool. <laughs> Waldo, Waldo, Waldo. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who came up with this name? <laughs> but they all had weird names. You know, Waldo, I've been meaning to ask you this for a long time. How did your sister get a name like Quesadilla? <laughs> she was born in Taco Bell. <laughs> It was either quesadilla or burrito grande. And it was it was it was just a lot. Waldo's whole family. <laughs> they were funny. So did y'all enjoy watching the show like again now as adults compared to watching it as children? Like Oh yeah. Like it was I mean, I grew up on this. I mean, I was born in 88. So like this was Me too. Good you year. know. Yeah, so this is like the, you know, the majority of my childhood and TGIF, we only had 10 stations. So like this was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this was, this was it. Why, rewatching it, I was surprised because I just, I didn't watch through all the, se- rewatch all the seasons, but I chose some random ones. And it was interesting because the random ones that I chose were actually ones that were like my favorite that were like crystallized in my brain. that I didn't know <laughs> when I was choosing it was that particular episode. But like when I was watching, I'm like, oh, I remember this one. I remember that one. So, and it, and it reminded me too, my brother had shared with me this TikTok, which was, you know, what TV show radicalized you when you were young. And I mm. had that as a check-in for my students one time for class and they were going through the different TV shows. And one of them mentioned Family Matters. And I said, okay, like how radical is Family Matters for you? And they mentioned the episode with Laura trying to get Black history within mm. the, the history course. 
during the, one of the first few seasons. And I'm like, I don't even remember that. And so it was just mm. cool seeing that again. I'm like, oh, see, we often think too much about the past, not having, you know, this radicalized thinking or this intuitiveness of, of what's missing out of the context of history or courses or education. And yet here was a show in the 90s that we were all primed with, you know, all like tuned into that wasn't this, at the time, it didn't seem like there was this controversial, like there was a lot of, you know, talk or argument about the topics that were being presented. And yet mm-hmm. a lot of the topics are the ones being presented in today's sitcoms where people are looking at like, oh, this is so radical. And I'm like, it's wait a minute. Is yeah, like we've been doing this. Like you know, right. catch on in the '90s when all this, when all these TV right. shows and cartoons are coming out, that it was the same topics. Mm-hmm. I often ask, have they been ignoring us all of these years? Are they just not? Do they think we're lying? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what makes it. I mean, there's a lot of things that, context-wise, you know, make it different True. the '90s to now. But the fact that they were, the fact that the creators were all white men, might have had a lot mm-hmm. to do with it compared to a lot of the directors and, and folks leading the way today with some of the sitcoms and uh, movies that are being produced on the same topics are are people of color, Black people. So that might have a lot of a lot of the weight and resistance that we're seeing now. So yeah, so I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching through it again. Yeah. When watching this, um, it was it did feel very nostalgic. You know, you, you had the the episodes that are you are kind of memorized, like when you think about family matters, you have like a scene that you automatically go to in your brain. I especially didn't realize it kind of reminds me of like watching Proud Family again, how many teachable moments that were actually in it. So um, watching Family Matters again, it was like, oh, wow, especially those earlier seasons, Lawrence and Steve were doing a lot of things and bringing a lot of knowledge to um, hard topics. You know, um, I think Steve was trying to get people to to do a fundraiser or, or, yeah, do a fundraiser for cancer or something like that. And then, you know, it was just different topics that I was like, I didn't pay attention to it. I think I was just more so laughing at Steve, like, like at his antics and what his lines were or the the, I guess the other storyline, but I, I guess it was too much for me to understand it at that age because I think I was like, yeah, I was I was very young at that time. So I, was, I wasn't looking at it for the learning, the lessons, but as an adult, I see the lessons that I probably learned, you know, just kind of inherently, you know. Definitely agreed. And I felt like there's a lot of sitcom kind of tropes that come from this show. Like, I feel like every sitcom in the 90s had certain episodes that were based on certain things. So there were the ones against teen drinking. There were the ones where there's going to be a jury duty or a courtroom case. There's someone's going to get robbed by Santa or a clown. Oh, <laughs> or hell hostage. <laughs> someone's oh. going to get stuck on a ledge or a fire escape. <laughs> How does this happen? Michael, I just don't understand. Like, is this real life? Like, where do they get these stories from? Why are you on the ledge? (laughs) But one of the lessons that did stick with me, like how you were saying, Rosie, some of the teachable moments, I learned that teen drinking is not cool because everyone who was at the party did the Urkel dance because they were all drunk. In my mind, that's how it came together. (laughs) That's how it worked Mm -hmm. out because there was teen drinking. Everybody thought that this dance was cool. <laughs> I think you can still do it. It's pretty cool. Now point your fingers up to the sky and talk through your nose way up high. Spin and dip and jump and garbort and finish it off with a laugh and snort. 
Party, I think you'd be. Like, Will you do so it with popular. me? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I get everybody in a come on, girl, I'm gonna show you how to do it. <laughs> do the Arca. <laughs> <laughs> I think y'all bring okay. up a great point though with Urkel because I think like the, the scenarios you just laid out, Courtney, and, and the mention, um, Rosie, that you said of like the focus kind of like on Urkel and just as a youth, right, that the, the the big themes were kind of curtailed by by Urkel. And I think that's the element that is absent from the sitcoms today that also lead to some further resistance because they had a, the way that they crafted that sitcom was to have a, a humor, like, right? Like somebody to break a comic relief, mm-hmm. right? To like break the, of the, of the theme, of the actual underlining theme. And people who, you know, didn't get that theme or didn't get the context or dynamic could just focus on Urkel, which was mm-hmm. probably a majority of white folks, right? Could just focus mm-hmm. on Urkel and how funny he is. But for those, you know, for those of us who are in the community or identify or can identify with those themes, at least, you know, we could see the seriousness of what's happening. Like I still, to this day, remember like the episode where um, Laura was trying to get a gun and like somebody was shot at the school campus. I think that was like the most serious episode mm-hmm. that they had in that series. Mm-hmm. Like there was no comic relief. There was no... Like, you know, it was mm-hmm. from point, you know, A to, to the end, like, this is what we're talking about. And I think that's why it sits with me so much is because it, there wasn't there wasn't a relief. It was very much like keyed into the moment and, and what was needing to be discussed and what was needing to be owned by the viewer, which I think, again, is why today with today's films and sitcoms outside of like Comedy Central and like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the cartoons, right, they still have that satire element to it. But the ones that are, are, you know, real life folks, the reason why there's still some resistance is when those topics are presented is because they, we don't give in to the comic relief. We we hold steady with, with the theme and what's being talked about. Yeah, and I, I also remember too, like, this is filmed in Chicago. It was actually filmed in Chicago. So I wonder if that also too was taken into consideration because, you know, that type of violence was still, uh, I mean, it it was prominent then and it still is, you know, it's a huge issue in, in Chicago uh, with having children going to school with wep- uh, guns and weapons and things like that. But yeah, I I think it's just really cool how, how they were able to kind of make those things happen, like both letting us know what's happening in our real world, but then adding that storyline that ends up with someone on this, uh, the ledge of something or doing something crazy, but it, it tied it all in. And, and I think that's what made this such a great sitcom. Agreed, ladies. So with that being said, let's jump right into um, some of these characters and case conceptualization. So who would you guys like to start off with first? I'll, I'll throw it out for <laughs> y'all to pick. Let, can we do Steve? Oh, we gonna, we gonna go heavy real quick. Yes, oh, okay. real quick. Let's get him out the way. Because I have two disorders. I scratched one out. I got another one. I'm about to scratch that one, depending on what you say. <laughs> yeah, I have several. I have several. <laughs> I don't mind going first. And we can work these out together because, like I said, I have several and my mind went a couple of different places. And so we'll th- throw them out there and then we'll come to a consensus on what we agree with. Cool. And so I diagnosed Steve 
even though I would prefer this diagnosis come from a, um, a specialist, I diagnosed him with autism spectrum disorder. And Ooh. so anytime that that is a suspicion, I would recommend that person get full assessment somewhere else. Um, just because I, as a licensed counselor, feel that that is a diagnosis that's better sought, fully confirmed somewhere else. But for the criteria that I feel that he meets, uh, there are deficits in social emotional reciprocity, nonverbal communicative behaviors, and uh, deficits, the one most prevalent for him, I felt, deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships, ranging, for example, from a difficulties to adjusting behavior and suit various social contexts and, in, uh, and or making friends. Um, to go a little bit further with that, uh, stereotype repetitive motor behaviors, in, insistence on sameness, inflexive adherence to routines or ritualized patterns of verbal or nonverbal behavior. So those pants. So like those pants. <laughs> I felt like that was... <laughs> you insist on wearing them tight pants and that high. And once he got to a certain age, it started, it was vaguely inappropriate. Like, sir, we can see too many things. You are too old for this. <laughs> and then he had certain routines that he had to follow and um, things that he wanted to go a certain way. Highly restricted um, fixating interests on that are abnormal in intensity or focus, strong attachment or preoccupation. And I felt that that was his infatuation with Laura Lee Winslow. Okay, and so then there's another one. <laughs> I, also, I feel that all of um, Steve's issues come from the fact that he had trash parents. Herb and Diane did not love him. They did not care for him appropriately. He made mul mm -hmm. multiple references of them not being around, them not supporting him, them not wanting to be around him. And I feel like borderline to the point where CPS should have been called. They went on a two week vacation without Steve and just left him. Wait, then they go to Russia or something and he's like... Did they move to they Russia? They moved to Russia. <laughs> they moved to Russia. And, and left him. They didn't leave him that time. He chose to stay. And so that's how he Same ended difference. up moving in with the Winslows. Probably. And he probably just didn't want to tell people because that sounded terrible. And Carl should have been a mandated reporter and let the CPS know a long time ago that these people were neglecting this poor baby. So I feel like all of these issues are because his parents did not love him to an adequate amount. And I also diagnosed him with disinhibited social engagement disorder um, at a persistent level. And so for that disorder, the criteria is reticence in approaching and interacting with unfamiliar adults. And so like people would come and Steve would just be friends with him like that weird uh, relationship that he had with the janitor. <laughs> Overly familiar <laughs> verbal or physical behavior, which I feel that he was always like right on Carl. Like just right on Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Even when Carl didn't want him to be, he was just right there. Diminished abs or absent checking back with adult caregiver after venturing away even in unfamiliar settings. He hardly ever was home, like ever. And the, uh, the child has experienced a pattern of extremes of insufficient care as evidenced by social neglect or deprivation in the form of persistent lack of having basic emotional needs or comfort, stimulation, and affection met by caregiving adults and rearing in unusual settings that severely limit opportunities to form selective attachments. It's all his parents' fault. Whoever Herb and Diane are, they deserve jail time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I did 
general personality disorder, especially so um, and during a pattern of inner experience and behavior that deviates markedly from the expectations of the individual's culture. So I think about his um, his split between Stefan and Steve. And so I chose to like to choose out of the four. So it's cognition, affectivity, interpersonal functioning and impulse control. So I chose cognition and impulse control. And so for cognition as ways of perceiving and interpreting self, other people and events. So I think the reason why he had a hard time understanding when um, when the Winslows were getting irritated with him was that he had a difficulty understanding, interpreting some of their words and behaviors as these are indicators for you to go. (laughs) (laughs) Impulse control, you know, just kind of on on keyed up, I guess, if you will, like his just hyperactivity. So that, and then I crossed that out and then I gave him. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I did all of that just to say no. Um, And then I went to borderline, uh, borderline, bipolar one disorder. And Mm. um, I gave him a manic episode because of the um, persistent, persistently elevated, like abnormally elevated. Um, The thing that kind of makes me want to cross this one out is that he was never irritable. And then it's like increased goal-directed activity, energy lasting a week or persistent most of the day. Um, So he was, to me, I felt like he was goal-oriented because he had all of his experiments that he was constantly working on and trying to get better um, or his little (laughs) projects that he had Carl test out every now and then. Out of the other behaviors, unusual behaviors, excessive involvement in activities that have high potential for painful consequences, his experiments. Um, <laughs> or his clumsiness. <laughs> or his clumsiness. And so then that's that soaker, uh, psychomotor agitation. And then distractibility, flight of ideas, more talkative than usual. So I kind of gave him those um, types, that type. Yeah, that was hard. <laughs> Steve is hard. There's so many different things going on. So I like it. I like it because I, my thoughts are going. So I um, I wanted to start with Urkel. You know, I wanted to, for him to be because he's so right predominant in the show and, and so so much the focus. Um, but I realized in watching the show is that I think he's the healthiest. Mm. And, and this is why. Like, so I, because I got thinking, I got looking at it. I'm like, you know, Again, knowing that it's a family and and I'm not an MFT, so I've only had like one course in what has family therapy involved and I've had child and adolescent courses, but I pulled out my textbook because I'm like this, I got to look at this as a, as a system, as a family system for a second mm-hmm. um, before making some individual diagnoses, like what's happening with the family system. And I tend to be also more uh, existentially inclined. And so Carl Whitaker's symbolic experimental theory who tends to be also in similar mind of, of uh, he didn't like to diagnose families um, and and he didn't find himself actually even to be really a theorist at some points, but he was, he was confrontational and he really viewed the goal of the family system and especially in therapy was member authenticity and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And so that got me thinking because where I kept getting drawn to was like, who's the client in the family? Cause it's not Urkel. And I was drawn to Carl. So I'm like, well, why Carl? Because he's angry. Um, it's Carl. He, Carl is the problem. Because he's angry. Because he's angry. 
So I started with Carl and I did like a little kind of a sketchy um, genogram of, mm-hmm. of Carl and his relationships. I, for me, I'm recognizing that Carl is the least authentic out of yes. all the characters. He's he's the least authentic. And yes. in the relationships that he has with all of the different members, he's performative in some ways. And there's slight moments when he's authentic, like when he decides to get goofy and dances with Laura and Harriet in one of the episodes at the end, like Funky Chicken and stuff. Like there's tiny moments when he decides to be um, authentic. But I think the reason why we're drawn to his relationship with Urkel is because Urkel, in a sense, is the therapist in this family. He's the, he's the he's the projection of the family, what the family's striving to be because he's the most authentic. Mm-hmm. He's the one that's the most willing to be authentic and the only one who's the truly authentic within that family. Mm-hmm. And I so that's why agree. he that's why there's <laughs> angst, so much angst between specifically him and Carl. And then if you look at the degrees and relationships in terms of how they react with, with Steve, it kind of mm-hmm. points to how authentic those members are. So like Eddie and him are good friends and like every now and then him and, him and Eddie get into it. But Eddie's, I would say, fairly healthy. Like he doesn't, you know, he's him. He's like, he tries to live up to what his dad's wanted him to do like any, mm-hmm. you know, kid would. And his dad's got high expectations with him and wants to spend quality time. And he every now and then listens to the advice, every now and then doesn't. But he's 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 okay being him. Like he's him within the family. Harriet as well. Like Harriet doesn't have mo- many issues with Urkel. She's just kind of like, ah, yeah, there you are. She's one of the most authentic characters. Same with Grandma Winslow. One of the most authentic characters. Richie, ah. same thing. But Laura and Carl, they're two that always bump, bump heads with Urkel because they're the two that are the most least authentic in the family, the ones that are always struggling for authenticity. Laura, through adolescence, trying to figure out where she is and how she places herself in the cheerleading team or her relationships or what she's wanting or what she's supposed to be. Carl, I think it, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> but that's Agreed. that's my conceptualization. I think Urkel is the healthiest, except for what happens to him. I think going with your generalized personality disorder is that in later seasons, when Stefan comes out, the family makes him sick. Because the family's mm-hmm. refusing to change. And those members that he's been working with, thinking of him almost like the, the change agent, right? Mm-hmm. Those that he's been working with the most towards change continuously fail to recognize that and continuously pr- put up barriers and push and resist to the point where it actually makes Urkel sick. It makes Urkel sick to the point where he has to be delusional and be something else, completely something else, which therefore erases his inauthenticity. And he no longer is, he no longer is him within the family. I completely agree with all of that. And I was going to get into it more when we talked about Laura and Carl, because I I definitely agree. I I felt like um, because, you know, Steve's parents are trash. He finds that level of stability that he was looking for as far as like caring relationships in the Winslow house. But I feel like especially once we get towards the later seasons, I diagnosed Stefan as a separate person (laughs) with the... um, because they create a twin and then Stefan actually gets to be a real human in some weird scientist uh, world because Steve invents things. But because of that, I diagnosed him separate with the uh, personality changes due to another medical condition. But once we get to the final season, that is where Laura actually starts to fall for Steve. And she's only beginning to fall for Steve because Steve is trying to try on different personas and change who he is to be more socially accepted. And that's why I tried, I thought more so about the um, the autism spectrum because that, that, that social awkwardness and not picking up on social cues, I feel like he started to move out of that and say like, okay, this isn't, people aren't perceiving me the way that I feel like I would like. And so 
baby, but he internalized that instead of seeing that that as an outside problem with maybe it's the people that I'm around. He started to internalize that and say, well, maybe I need to change different things about me. And then that's when Laura started to fall for him. And I'm like, no, that's so problematic. <laughs> Steve, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. And see, I, I I could see where autism would come up, but I don't think he's autistic. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's autistic because he, he has he clearly has empathy, like he clearly yeah. understands and and that that in itself, like that ability to have, I mean, the cues every now and then, okay, but that right. could just be that could just be culture, that could just be family culture. Like if you, like you said, you mentioned his parents, if you don't have those interactions with folks who are giving you that love and support or that dialogue, those checks and balances that you're able to read them, then that's going to lead to you be having difficulty reading that in other relationships. And so I don't think that's autistic. I think that's I think that's the nature of the family system he was raised in and the exposure he had with his relationships that make him inept in that way. But I could see where some folks would at first diagnose him possibly. Mm-hmm. Like I could see a school psych, you know, an elementary school saying that I think he might qualify or a teacher pushing it. But also he's so highly intelligent. Like there's so many domains that he he would strike, you know, okay in that I don't think he would be ruled autistic. But that's why I felt I put it there because I feel like my fear would be that they would say, oh, it's savantism. And so they would try to categorize that because he is so highly t- intelligent. No, I don't think he's savant either. I don't either. But these are just my thoughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, I completely and I completely get what you're saying. I still think that it's his parents. It's all his parents' fault. And if they had been better people, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> it's the parents, and then he got sucked into the the family dynamic that was spiraling out of control because of Carl's unresolved issues with inside the Winslow house. Yeah, and then I also think that, to your point, Dr. Lee, uh, when you were talking about him not being the least authentic character, I think that also being a police officer in Chicago Mm. um, required him to put on this mask, and he just never took it off. So, you know, um, at times he had to put on this persona of being in charge, of being in control, and so there was this Because when you look at it, he did have that very authoritative, stern, fatherly type of presence. I think that's what he he wanted to be for his kids. But then Steve forced him to be different, you know, to find, Mm -hmm. to to learn compassion, to learn to give him grace. Like, okay, he just messed up the entire house and, you know, getting angry. And then the compassion to me and the grace that that comes into play is when he's able to allow him to walk through the door the very next day. Yeah, he may be still upset about it, but he he has a level of, he taught him some level of compassion um, with his antics as well. Yeah, I agree. That's why I said, it. you know, for me, Urkel's the, the healthiest and in some ways the change agent within the family. The, mm-hmm. He's he's the scapegoat as well as almost mm-hmm. the, the therapist. He's the mirror. He's showing them what they're striving to be. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in the context, you know, in terms of his, his family and his upbringing, right? Like people would say like he would be the least likely to be healthy. If your parents had abandoned you, if you're this awkward, you know, person in terms of you don't fit culturally with as cool, but you're really highly intelligent, like busting all the stereotypes that are often internalized by black males, right? And having been this representation of something else, all entirely of what it means to be black male, we can we can get into the relationship piece with him and Laura in terms of him stalking her and stuff. But um, <laughs> oh, <right>. but <laughs> outside of that, like you know him mirroring that and, and showing them that I think is what really, again, drives that 
every now in those conflicts with Carl because Carl wants to be that. Carl wants to, like you said, take off that mask and just be be him. Like, in the times that he is, he's goofy. He's nerdy. Mm-hmm. He's just like this, you know, like when he's sitting there dancing or he's like doing this funny stuff with little, you know, Richie and stuff. Like he is that that goof. He is that nerd. Um, But then he has to put on that mask of either being hyper masculine Mm -hmm. with having to prove to Harriet that he can do all this work around the house or the same with being a father. Like, I've got to show you, you know, this is what you got to do to, you know, to Eddie. Because I think he struggles to relate with Eddie, too, because Eddie is different than him. Eddie's a sports kid. Eddie's this, you know handsome tall like he represents the masculinity that carl wished he had to me mm. and so once eddie got to a, a, a certain age they started bumping heads real heavy i'm sorry i completely cut you off Dr. no <laughs> no sorry. you're good you, better. So you didn't cut me off no go for it yeah. and so are we in complete agreement, guys steve is actually really healthy he is just the product of parents who did not show him love and affection because he probably did not meet their expectations as black um, professionals and inventors and scientists and so they did, he did not receive the love and care that he deserved growing up and then got thrown into this dynamic that is the Winslow house. So I think I think yes he's, he is the healthiest but like I said I think in the later seasons he gets sick when he when yes. Stefan comes out because and that's but the sickness is due to the family not changing right being becoming more rigid and crystallized in who they are and in their inauthenticity um, and that forcing him to to change, to be something else in order to be with them. And yeah, so ma- I, and maintaining yeah. that homeostasis, does, do you feel that you agree with Dr. Rosie's diagnosis? Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think about when I, when I diagnosed him was in the later episodes. I didn't diagnose him in the earlier episodes. So I, and I realized that, that the Stefan situation was what was um a red flag for me in a lot of situations too and just even how everyone preferred Stefan over Steve and it's just like well mm-hmm. he can't be that person all the time you know because Steve had uh, Steve Urkel has an actual life he has an actual relationship you know and so he can't just be this person for them for the sake of them um, yeah, and I was very happy when at first Laura was trying to talk Steve into just being Stefan. And and Steve was like, no, I like me. And there are several times in the show where I was just so proud of him because he said, I like me. I like who I am. Yeah. And so that made me happy and gave me the warm and fuzzies that I'm sure the writers intended for. <laughs> <laughs> but I did diagnose um, Stefan as personality change due to another medical condition because the first version of Stefan was very self-centered, very arrogant. And then I guess Steve fixed the recipe (laughs) and manipulated the DNA so that he could be cool and sensitive. And so I felt like that the DNA manipulation was the medical condition that led to Stefan having a personality change. I see that. And then I I think about, again, the later episodes, because I'm remembering them (laughs) more than the, the newer ones, but when they were in Paris, when he, when he was able to duplicate himself, and then so he was able to become, he can be Steve, and then there was also Stefan, but then Stefan had this identity crisis and saying, I don't have a past, so how do I know what I want to be in the future? Um, and so it was really interesting how the writers kind of included this identity development for Stefan, even though that that technically was the last season, I think they were just kind of trying to cap off with a good place with this character, right? And like, how does Laura also get what she wants at the end of the day too? We still have to add that part in there because 
Laura loves Stefan, which is kind of strange. It's like you say ill to Urkel, but then you'd be like, oh my God, for Steve. I mean, for Stefan, I'm just like, it's the same person. He's just not wearing high waters and glasses. <laughs> so, um, yeah. The relation between Laura and Stefan and slash Urkel is like going back to symbolic experimental um, theory under the family systems theory of, of Carl Whitaker. He had labeled issues as issues of intimacy. So one being the issue of uh, the struggle of I-ness and we-ness. So individualism mm-hmm. and belonging. Mm-hmm. And there being three different levels. So the delusion of intimacy, where one falls in love with another, but it's like to the extreme and it isn't reciprocated. Um, the, <laughs> so the delusion, yeah. right? The delusion of intimacy, stage one. The the illusion of intimacy, which is the desire for like oneness, like merger, right? Of self with other, um, which bypasses individuation and belonging by creating an illusion of a third position. So the relationship, the we, and then the the state that we want to get to is the fact of intimacy, which requires individuals to break through the illusion of intimacy and, you know, to wrestle with being fully dialectic within within this relationship of both being the individual and the and in the relationship. And so I don't think Laura ever gets there. I think she's hovering around the delusion as well as Steve. Like he's, a, mm-hmm. he's delusional when it comes to intimacy with Laura. And they may transcend into the illusion of intimacy. Like I think she does, especially in her relationship, like the illusion of the relationship with Stefan, because there is no individual. Like you mentioned, like when he finally makes that split, can we really say he is an individual? Is he a self without a past? And, and therefore she's just grabbing hold of what? She's not grabbing hold of a, of a, of a relationship or a person, but the illusion right. of one. Right, so at some point there's gonna be some discord in the relationship for both of them because there's go- always gonna be something more that, that Stefan is going to want to strive for or need to you know, kind of make his identity concrete. And then in some ways he might go through this weird developmental stage as well, where he might, you know, probably go into a toddler stage or he, you know what I'm saying? Like he could, he could change developmentally, which could be a bad thing for the relationship. And I think that the existential work that you're talking about would be great to do if Stefan was the, like an individual client, because he does need that, that sense of purpose, that what is the meaning of his life? Because his purpose really was to be cool, to be cute and for Laura's admiration. Like, Mm -hmm. and those were his only three Mm -hmm. things. And so he was cool. And he got a job as a model because he was cute and he was in a relationship with Laura. And then he started to realize like, this can't, this doesn't feel like this should be it. Well, mm-hmm. first of all, if there's feelings. I have feelings now. <laughs> and mm-hmm. this doesn't feel like this is, is, is everything. And so at some point he would, he might find his actual purpose or what it is that he fulfills him completely aside from just Laura and him not being scratch that reverse it her not being his everything would cause tension in that relationship and so I'm glad that they didn't end up together either because I don't know if she could really handle she had a really hard time with him saying that he wanted to be a model like eventually Mm -hmm. she came to like oh no you'll resent me but then it still was about her and his their feelings for each other I don't know if she would ever have gotten to a place where Stefan really needs to do what's best for Stefan for Stefan because he was created to make her happy so I'm gonna offer a question. We don't have to go this this route, but I'm just thinking <laughs> as we're as we're talking, I'm thinking, 
would you go on with symbolism here? Would you say that that Urkel and his evolution towards Stefan is a representation of racial battle fatigue? In essence, thinking of even though the Winslows identify as as black, as African American, right? A lot of what their expectations are of Urkel again is you're not following into this, you're not following into the stereotype. You're not following into the the predominancy of what is blackness or what we want masculinity to be or what we want you to be. Uh, mm-hmm. And then through that, what happens when he finally achieves that, like you said, last season, right? I'm achieved what you have asked me to be. There's a loss and there's a there's a question of meaning. And I, I'm wondering, because this c- conversation happens quite often now with faculty of color of like, right? Like going through the stages of our development and being pushed and saying, maybe not in the same context, not as harsh as what Laura and Carl were saying, but just, you know, these messages of like who we want to be and who we're aspiring to be at the same time, who who we want to be authentically and how we want to contribute, right? To the relationship to our community, going through the circles of the hierarchy of the institutions and arriving at the, the ivory tower, so to speak. And some of us, right, may be at a point where we have some questions like, who am I? based off of that evolution and and what we've endured in those experiences, those messages of having to try to mold ourselves in specific ways and specific patterns that may have us detached from the communities that we are actually wanting to be serving our own. Finger snaps, finger snaps, finger snaps. (laughs) And I don't know if the writers are going there. That's why I offered it because I don't know. I'm sure they weren't. (laughs) No. Intentionally. But But it is a good representation of it. I feel and like my brain is is going there and I feel like that could be another hour long conversation. <laughs> well, we could bring it back to Carl, right? Because we're talking about the unmasking mm-hmm. and masking, right? The polarity that he has to face in being an officer and being a black male. Um, you know, and that masking and unmasking and what unfolds for him because he is in the present, right? As soon as you, you're introduced to him, inauthentic. Mm-hmm. And he has a past, right? And he has like symbolic meaning in the family that he has and he's created but he struggles again with with being with being him and trying to figure out how to balance in his relationships being him i think that he because he his father died at a young age and he kind of became the i guess the man of that house and we know that that's something that people that some families uh struggle with is that some mothers love their, I had a friend say recently, they um, they raise their daughters and love their sons. And so Carl feeling like he had to assume that role and almost possibly being parentified because of that and having to develop this hyper-masculinity, find out what it means to be a man to him, for, for himself and find out what it means to be a Black man um, and navigate those things kind of on his own. I feel that that is where he learned a lot of that that performative nature. He learned to put on the mask. He learned, and I think that's why he was getting punked off by his bosses. That's why he was presenting one way this this time, another way this time. That's why he bought into all of those respectability um, policies and politics. And I think that um, we see there's an episode where OG Dog. I, I don't know why that's the name that they came up <laughs> for for his cousin from Detroit, for Steve's cousin from Detroit, but. Um, they have uh, uh, they bump heads as soon as 
uh, Carl comes home because Carl is, well, maybe if you didn't look like a criminal, you wouldn't be treated like one or this music uh, disrespects police officers. And because Carl has subscribed to this is how we have to be, this is how we have to perform as black people in order to, you know, get anywhere. He takes that out and puts those, um, those tropes on and, and schemas on his family members and so when they don't perform to where he's used to performing then it's something wrong with them because he's not able to see that he is being authentic like inauthentic like you were saying so i have a question for you um oh both of you did either one of you diagnose waldo geraldo faldo of course i diagnosed waldo geraldo faldo <laughs> <laughs> I didn't because I don't see like I don't think I I don't think I don't think he's in a crisis. I mean, he may have some some, you know, as a youth right navigating through education may need some extra supports and accommodations that require an educational diagnosis. But mm-hmm. but I don't I don't see him as unwell. <laughs> like, I think he again, kind of with Urkel, with Steve, he's one of the most authentic characters. He's just like, OK, in some ways, ignorance is bliss. You know, sometimes being being just hey, here I am, you know, just kind of naive in some ways to the world has some resilience to it, has some strength to it. Hmm. But I definitely feel that he was really high functioning because he is and was building a successful career as a chef. As a chef. He found something that he was really, really good at. He was exceptional, um, in fact, and they learned that in high school and he went to college for it and he was being successful in college as well. So whatever, like he wouldn't need much support, but he could have used a lot more support throughout his K through 12 years. And I feel that the school system did fail him there because he could have, he was struggling for a very long time. And once he found um, and cooking in home ec class, he finally like had a, a more, a boost of self-esteem because we know for that developmental stage, kind of how well you do in school and can have an influence on how you feel about yourself. Um, as a they tie those two things together and so he was struggling so hard in school that could have been something that was really hard and weighing heavy on him and so it took him so long to find something that he was good at but had they been more support had there been more support for him along the way it might not have been as difficult for him along the way because I think he did also struggle with some of the friendships that he was making because he wasn't on anyone's radar as well so in when we're first introduced to him he is friends with the kids who are the He's friends with the kids who are drinking at the party. And it could have really went bad for Waldo because he is so like, I'm just here. I'm hanging out. What's up? Cool. And <laughs> and going along with what, whatever he want to do that. Why are you doing that, Willie? Like it just whatever was going on. And so I'm glad that um, him and Eddie kind of linked up. And while Eddie was still, you know, sometimes playing him for the fool, he kind of still kept him out of a lot of bad things that could have happened had Waldo continued to follow the wrong crowd. And so I do think that the, the school system could have done, done a little bit more. But um, I feel like his prognosis is positive because he's able to have um, in- intimate relationships. Him and Maxine was together for a long time. Mm-hmm. He's able to have good friendships. Him and Eddie were doing good. Him and Steve were good friends. He learned how to tap dance for some reason. Uh, <laughs> 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 I feel like he has a positive prognosis. <laughs> okay, okay, that's good. What about uh, Myra? <laughs> <laughs> She's just crazy. I, I struggle her with her. I, I did too. Sort of jealous type. I wanted to I give her all the types, <laughs> honestly. But just, 
I felt like jealous type was fitting for her. Um, <laughs> okay. Awesome. Awesome. And I was concerned about her because for her um, schizophrenia, the criteria for schizophrenia had never been met. But some of the stuff that she like just sprinkled out um, throughout the season, the seasons that she was in about her mother made me question whether or not her mother was schizophrenic. And then I was like, I'm a little nervous for Myra because if someone doesn't intervene soon, <laughs> this could potentially grow. Uh, and, and especially in that uh, her last couple episodes that she was in where she had the the Steve uh, Urkel wallpaper, his face was everywhere. Listen. And she started, mm-hmm. she put the glass, she put the camera in his glasses. And so she was watching everything he was doing. And it was a little creepy. She, mm-hmm. she made me a little nervous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right. And then like her over like, affection like Mm -hmm. it was Steve clearly wasn't trying to go there but she was just all up in his like you know face and just wanting you know the most affection from him at all like at all times um I thought was I'm I'm trying to think what what diagnosis what other diagnosis could fit that I'm not sure but Steve said that he was saving himself for marriage and she could right. not respect that. She was trying mm-hmm. to get in the deflower for yeah, Steve. Right. <laughs> she was trying to get in them overalls. She wanted them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the suspenders. The tight pants. It wasn't no room for you in there. Myra, the pants was too tight. Do you know how long it takes to get in and out of the pants? He don't have time for that, Myra. <laughs> it didn't matter. She wasn't worried about that. She just knew she just needed to see that man naked. Lord. She loved him. No, she did see him naked one time because she, and she painted a picture of it because she was stalking him. And he said, Myra, were you looking at my window again? Because she painted a picture of him. again. (laughs) That's right. She was a good counterbalance though because I think, right, starting out looking Mm -hmm. at Steve, you would think he was the one that was like, you know, stalkerish and overly obsessed Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. just not, you know, recognizing boundaries. And then it was like, when she came into the mix, she completely offset. Like she showed clearly, like this is, this is, this is what it means to be (laughs) boundaries and obsessive (laughs) and, you know, stalking. Yes, yes. You know, and Steve, and Steve wasn't, right? So it was kind of like, wait a minute. Steve, like we still are comfortable with Steve, but like him and Laura have an understanding of their dynamics within the relationship. <laughs> you know, like there was a mutual understanding in some ways of of where those boundaries were, even though, you know, he would say something that she'd kind of be like, oh, Steve, like there yeah. was still he didn't he didn't push it. She often would. She would get hurtful. Mm-hmm. She would get really hurtful. Um, but he didn't but he didn't get hurtful towards her. You know, he did respect he, her boundaries. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything that he did to hurt her. And Myra, on the other hand, again, didn't have any clear set of boundaries. And and for her, it didn't matter if she hurt Steve because she wasn't seeing how her, you know, delusions of, <laughs> of intimacy were um, were harming him. Yeah. Like putting him in all these dangerous situations, <laughs> getting, him, right. getting him to do things he didn't want to do. <laughs> like... <laughs> Think of them on that doggone hammock. <laughs> yes, that was the episode. That was the episode. I remember clearly. <laughs> they had me afraid of hammocks for a very long time. <laughs> Listen. No safe way to get on. <laughs> okay, so while we're talking about other uh, the, uh, some of the other characters outside of the nuclear family of the Winslows, I was very worried about Max. Max. 
Yeah, Laura's best friend, Maxine. Oh, Maxine. Oh. See, like, that's what I mean. You forgot all about Max. That's the problem. Everybody just forgets about Max. Her parents won't pay her no attention. Max was so sad because Laura had a, a, a parents that would, had a curfew and she had to be home one time and they cared about what she wore. Max was like, do you know who mm-hmm. called looking for me? Nobody, bitch, because my family doesn't love me. No one cares. She would be Waldo, Geraldo, Faldo. And that was, it was going good until it wasn't. And then they just wasn't even together no more. We didn't even get a breakup episode after they had been dating for so many episodes. And then she just decided she wasn't going to college no more. And she wanted to go to hair school, which I was like, okay, good. She's found something that she's good at. But then she started dating a drug dealer and got busted for carrying a pack for him. Um, so again, this is in Chicago. Okay. Exactly. So who cares about the, you don't have to be... My concern is Max wasn't exceptional. Like Laura was uh, a valedictorian or not, not, no, she wasn't. Steve had the best grades, but she was high performing academically. She was always called the most popular. And I feel that ever since the episode where Bumper Bumper Johnson, Ivan from uh, our Living Single episode, Ever since he dumped her because she won't give it up, she just stopped caring about herself. And I feel like who cares about our young black girls? Are they get so easily overlooked? No one's paying attention. Who's watching our black girls? Who's protecting our babies? Okay, we step off the soapbox now. Okay. <laughs> so the reason why I was like, hold on, time out. As far as like the the care or how much the parents cared, because we have to remember too that black families, one, sometimes there's not, you know, a, both parents in the home, right? So we don't know the, the setup of her home and, you know, what the relationship was with her parents. Um, but then also the fact that most parents are having to work two or three jobs in order to help take care of, maintain, you know, certain bills and for the, uh, for the household and taking care of the kids. So, I will say that even with Steve's parents, like we, we are assuming that they didn't care, but maybe they weren't around enough because of the the strain and responsibility of, of being a caretaker. And, you know, as sometimes it, it can be costly and then we do put our faith in the public school system, but we've shown, we've been able, we've been able to see that there are some positive effects of it and there are some negative effects. And some people do fall through the, through the, the cracks of that pipeline, such as Matt. And that's and that to me is is a symbolism of our, uh, you know, the injustice in our in our system, our you know our school system, more so than it is the parents. I tend to agree in thinking of you know trying not to to criminalize or um, you know patronize the the parents, and, but you know and, and for me I, I keep thinking about like especially in the context of like Steve and like even Max like that was my house. You know, that was my mom. That was that was our apartment growing up. Like we had kids, you know, that were living down the block that would come up and stay at my mom's house. And it's not like we had anything exciting going on. I mean, like I said, we had cable that had 10 stations on it. We didn't have a PlayStation or anything. (laughs) But like but people would my brother's friends, like they would all hang out at my mom's house. And it was like they knew her rules and she had rules and we had a curfew. As soon as the lights came on, we had to be inside. But like they were always over at our house. And it wasn't that the parents didn't care. But they, they just, it was just part of, of raising, you know, like, and I, I just think, you know, at times you got to, we got to think about the context of community and like what's happening within the communities. And so like the Winslow's house was the community in an aspect, right? Like mm-hmm. and symbolic of the community 
um, in the neighborhood and like Urkel being able to stop over and be a member of the family, Maxine being able to be a member of the family um, in some ways. And then what happens at times, right, as they grow up and if they're disconnected from from those spots in the neighborhood, they used to be where you would go to hang out, to be safe, to be you when you weren't, you know, you were, were not getting needs met at home. Um, so, yeah. So for Max, I think like what happened with her relationship with Laura, you know, what happened with her relationship to that family, that's just that community that met. Cause I think that often is a sign of, of what, what the struggle is for them. You know, what, why, why it may have led them to, you know, disconnecting. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's expectations or like they don't feel like they're meeting the expectations of, you know, what that community anymore. Like, you know, like my mom's house, my brother's friend stopped hanging around when they were getting older because they they didn't want to let her down. They didn't want to embarrass her. They didn't want to like come in the house, you know, smelling like weed or, you know what I mean? Like there were mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. they're like, I can't be around because I know that, you know, you have, you have, and not that she would preach, she wouldn't, but it was just right. that like level of respect. And, but then it kept them on the outs, which also then made it harder to bring them back in. Max felt like her parents didn't care. Clearly, no one was doing anything in the school because she decided to go to hair school on her own. It wasn't like she had some guidance to make that decision. It and just there wasn't there. It just always seemed like there was were levels of support that other people that were, were getting that Max wasn't getting. And I just mm-hmm. feel that there are far too many that unfortunately do fall through that crack. And so mm-hmm. it's a larger systemic issue. Not uh, Max's parents are trash, like how I feel about Steve's parents. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Um, I felt that, like you were saying before, Eddie had lots of strengths. And I felt like his strengths weren't maximized. I feel like he was always be either... They were happy when he was good at basketball. He was able to get a scholarship for basketball. But he was also really good at singing and he had started a group and his dad like really cracked on that idea and was like, are you still hanging out with those low life musicians I told you to stay away from? And he used it to when it benefit him when he needed them to play at some event he was having. But it was just it just seems like a lot of the things that Eddie was into outside of sport his dad was like that's terrible and why aren't your grades better and I'm a little bit concerned and wanting to know if possibly Eddie might have had like a specific learning uh, disability or disorder because because of how many strengths he had and it wasn't like he didn't want to do well in school and we did see him trying to study here and there and there was always like a a disconnect between where his grades were and like he was like I'm trying I'm trying I I don't get it it's not making sense so I'm wondering if there was maybe like a reading comprehension or just a piece that was missing there that again these uh sitcom <laughs> school counselors are never addressing and I feel like Eddie could have been more successful had he had possibly had something in place for him there and even if he did want to go the criminal justice route he that could have been something that he pursued further and um did more instead of feeling like he had to just um follow in his father's footsteps exactly and go um straight to the police academy after dropping out of college yeah, I think what stood out for me um, with him was like his his infatuation with women. I mean, like any teenage boy, you know, like he's just like, you know, really just just goes dumb for a woman, you know, the minute she walks in on scene. 
And I didn't know if that was necessarily something worth diagnosing, but I, I that would be something like, you know, that I would find interesting to talk about. And like, if we were, if I were to do therapy with them, you know, to kind of dive deeper into that, like, are you using that as a distraction from doing what you need to do, that type of thing. But I didn't really have a diagnosis for him, but I did notice like, it was just like, he just existed in the Winslow household. Like, you know, there wasn't very much expectation for him. Yeah, I think he was definitely another authentic character. Where he just uh, symbolically wise, you know, and I wonder too, because given the fact that the creators were white men, you know, you have to think about like, what were some of the things that they were, messages that they were trying to send to the audience? Like what audience were they, what audience were they trying to cue into? Because they're the same creators as Step by Step mm-hmm. and The Family Man. And so it's like, what, um, you know, what were some of the things that they were trying to to show? And also what were some of the stereotypes that they weren't maybe aware of themselves that they were reproducing? And I think Eddie's a good example of that. Um, and so even breaking down for him, like what, you know, that masculinity, that being the player, that, you know, mm-hmm. being in sports. And I think that transition that he went through career-wise is similar to those that we, you know, we see going into the military, right? Mm-hmm. I got a, I got bad as in the military and, you know, I'm, I'm doing well. I was thinking about doing this for sports and get in. And then the dad's like, no, you need to... You know, we need to straighten you out. You need to get something that's going to work, that's going to be consistent. <laughs> you should go to the military because, you know, that's where all of us go that can't get into college or drop out of college. And, you know, when you said that, it makes me think about, okay, so what what is the perception of a Black man, you know, a Black young man? And so they kind of, they did box him in a bit, you know, in that, okay, so we didn't see him do well in like he did has his basketball scholarship and then he has this but it's like he could have been so much more you know there was so much more that that he had just for being you know a a young man but then when you add those other identifiers as far as being a black young man then it's like it seems as if his opportunities are cut in half if not you know anything at all um and so I didn't think about that as I was watching the episodes, but I'm just like, oh, okay, you know, actually, I don't like that message that they have for Eddie. Like, you know, Laura was able to do all these things and, you know, but then it's like for Eddie, it just seems so limited. And it was limited based off of stereotypes of being a player, being an athlete, going into the military or being some type of like police officer. And that, like, what was the other thing that, oh, and then a singer, like a performer. So it's like, those are all the things that young boys see, young black boys I see feel like are the only options of a way out, you know, and and there's so many other things. And I think the same with Steve, right? So like that representation of being, you know, authentic, right? Being fully you was to the very extreme that it was so outside of what we, you know, consider like the norm, right? Right. To where we're almost diagnosing it because it seems it's presented so abnormally. Mm-hmm. And then and then to take that character who you're presenting as the most authentic and then evolve them into being sick in terms of the splicing that happens with them under this pressure of needing to conform. And then Carl with his conflictions and being masked and unmasked and being in the system, um, you know, as a police officer, they don't present, they don't really offer another option. They don't offer a, a way of dealing with the with the polarities, right, of, mm-hmm. of again, belonging and, and intimacy and being what it means to be Black and 
Um, yeah. You know, be within the community, be authentic. Um, they don't offer that. And maybe it's because they didn't know what that looked like because they're white men right. that created it. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly mm-hmm. what I was thinking. I'm like, how could they add that authenticity in there? Um, because it, that's not their lived experience. So, and then, you know, when you, when you're a black actor, especially in that time, I feel like there wasn't a lot of room for them to improvise a lot of science, a lot of the cultural pieces there. Cause then it's like, oh, we need to cut that. Cause that's not, that's not appropriate. Or we need to cut that. That's not a part of the script. So, you know, it, it seemed very like, okay, stick to the writing. This is what we want to, you know, this character to be. And it just feels like they didn't develop that even enough for Eddie really to have the room to do that. And him as a young actor himself, we don't even know if he felt comfortable being at a place as uh, as of development with speaking and asserting his ground and saying, no, I don't feel comfortable doing this. We don't know if, uh, you know, Darius McCrary, the actor, was at a place where he felt comfortable doing that or was even aware that that could be done that it should be done and that he had agency to make that happen so yeah and that makes every time i think about um eddie two things come up the one where we find out that um he had yes he was girl crazy but he still was a virgin like through i think like almost senior year of high school and him saying no like i want that to be very i do want that to be special that is something that's important to me once he was talking to his dad um and then also the episode where he does get pulled over by the police and they make him get out of the car and lie down. And um, Darius McCrary said that that was something that was, he actually told the writers that that had happened to him because it was a real experience and they wrote it into the show. Um, he said that he, being an actor, he had had a nice car and his car was dirty. And they pulled him over saying, oh, well, if somebody really had a, this nice of a car, they would think enough to keep it clean. So it must not be yours. And so they made him get out the car, search the car and did all of that. And that was a very that was a very uh, standout experience for him. And it left a, a mark and impression on him. And so he shared that with the writers and they ended up writing that into the scene. But I think that is also a catalyst for us to get into the the, the the craziness that is Carl. The person the show was actually supposed mm-hmm. to be about in the first place before Urkel came in and won all of our hearts mm-hmm. over. Let's talk about Carl Winslow. <laughs> so did you, uh, Dr. Katie, diagnose Carl with anything? I I did not. I try to, I find it hard to diagnose him. I mean, other than the fact that he's just inauthentic. I mean, Carl Rogers, I think, would place him as being incongruent, but I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, see him as like depressing or you know manic I saw him every now and then like he he had anger issues in terms of like his mood would shift especially with Steve right as a catalyst would Mm -hmm. like make him be more in touch with his feelings but I couldn't yeah I didn't have a diagnosis for him per se maybe perhaps anxiety that he doesn't display display you know outwardly in a, in a way that we would define as, you know, quote unquote, typical, like he doesn't have anxiety attacks, but I think maybe some of his mood and um, his uh, irritability and like the like crux of like, you know, not knowing how to react to like his, his mother's, you know, husband and like that, <laughs> that displacement <laughs> piece. Yeah, I could see, I could see anxiety. Yeah, I agree, especially with that irritable mood. Um, the anxiety of, you know, maintaining a certain, um, you know, a certain persona and in, in working, being a black man in the police force. Um, I can imagine like, you know, 
the experience he had, you know, being black, seeing black men mistreated, looking like him, being having to arrest people that look like him. And so, um, you know, just the overall, what is it, like job related type of anxiety and, and unhappiness. But I, I, I would have a, a difficult time giving a diagnosis to him other than just his anger. So I think as a clinician, my my instinct is like naturally to work on, you know, that anger management. Okay, let's learn how to breathe. Uh, you know, let's not, you know, uh, blow up every time Steve does something and, and like emotional regulation. That's important for Carl because it's like his reactions didn't necessarily, I'm sorry, it did usually match up to the event. Now that I think about it, if someone blew out my kitchen windows, I'd probably lose my shit too. So <laughs> I'm just like, but if they did it every Thursday, would you lose your shit every time? Well, yeah, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, and then also, I think I would also tell Carl to establish boundaries too, which I think they were trying to do as a family. You know, I think they did start to try to do that with Steve. Because I'm just like, okay, at the at the same time, you're allowing this person to come in and to do this into your and do this in your home. So then it's like, okay, you have to either understand that their behavior is gonna always have this reaction for you. So or their what they're doing is gonna always have an adverse outcome. So maybe you shouldn't put yourself in those situations. How can we get you to not put yourself in that situation? So a lot of reflective work w- would likely happen with call, but yeah, I think it would probably be just like, like a, I wouldn't even give him a diagnosis, maybe other mental health issue unspecified, but not necessarily, maybe depression and then the irritability. I don't know. What do you think? Gave him a diagnosis. I use my uh, oppressive tool called the DSM that is made from these white people to uh, symptomatize the different things that we go through in life. And (laughs) I gave him a full diagnosis. I do agree with what you said with the boundaries, though, because you are not going to stalk my daughter from kindergarten all the way through college and me not even have a restraining order on you as a police officer. I don't know if I would allow that to happen. But I digress. Let me come back. I diagnosed him with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so like you were saying, a lot Mm -hmm. of those um, things that did happen on the job do have a lasting impact on people. And there was a specific episode where we fully see that Carl is um, having uh, a battle and experience with post-traumatic stress disorder. He said every year um, around for, for a week of time, he is going through this experience where he lost a hostage. And so um, because from the result of his interaction with the with negotiating with the person who was holding the hostages, the the perpetrator, assailant, mm-hmm. bad, bad guy, <laughs> ended up killing one of the hostages. And Carl took that very, very hard and um, had and had experienced mood swings every year during that week that it happened. And then he would watch the the, the video, the news report of that, uh, that night where they actually came and interviewed him and his responses to that. He had nightmares and had trouble sleeping and couldn't sleep be, uh, because of the experience of it. Um, and then also there was the time where we find out late, much later in the seasons where Eddie is going through the police academy and we find out that Carl was uh, shot, but he had his vest on and how that impacts him and how uh, he was so happy that he did have it on and how he doesn't take for granted the fact that he might not be here and that the family wouldn't be what it is. And for um, all of those things, I did diagnose him with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think it is evidenced by... um, 
a lot of the things that you talked about that you guys already talked about with the irritable behavior and angry outbursts um the reckless or not necessarily reckless or struck or or self-destructive behavior but i don't know because if you continue to get in steve's little contraptions then eh. <laughs> it's a See, I, think that, I think that was the nerd part of him he was actually yeah, interested he wanted those in things it. to work he yeah because there was when they it. did work he was really excited was until really something excited. blew up exactly. yeah i'll give you that um but he did have uh hypervigilance exaggerated startle response regularly anytime <laughs> somebody walked <laughs> ooh, he throw popcorn and stuff all over the place I had a, a twinge of problems with concentration only on certain things. I think that he would get certain, sometimes fixated on certain things and then people would have to, Carl, 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 and have mm-hmm. to pull him out of that. And as well as the sleep disturbances be uh, with him having having difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, because anytime uh, Steve would come with his dinosaur slippers, hur, 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 <laughs> he would wake up and, uh, rest, and not receiving restful sleep. Um, I thought, and I also felt that we might, might potentially, from the conversation that we have just been having, um, could specify at the specifier of the dissociative symptoms in him having mm-hmm. to remove himself from um, the, the different roles that he had to play, and like, like literally putting one mask on, taking one mask off, and that um, mm-hmm. difficulty that ha- he was having being his full his full self at times. So, what y'all think? I think it nailed it. I mean, I think it aligns with the anxiety and the recklessness. I right. mean, I can you can place that on the his need to fix it, right? Which mm-hmm. also sometimes comes <laughs> up for for individuals who who are you know living through PTSD is that they, there's mm-hmm. like whenever there's an opportunity, right? Like something's broke, I need to fix it. I need to fix it, even though if if I'm not the, the one that's equipped to do it, you know, I'm making those attempts, right? And I might re-break it, which he ends up doing most of the time. Yeah, but like his fixation, his focus on fixing something that he doesn't have the skills to fix, but his need to do that. And I think part of that too comes from that relationship that he had with Grandma Winslow and him having to be the man of the house early on and him, him defining what masculinity is. And and there's something broken in the house. I'm the man, I got to fix it. Uh, Harry is making more money than me. I, I can't have that. I'm about to go get a side job and never sleep. Like just different things that um, were, were coming and going for him. And I think that uh, that a lot of that came from him losing his father earlier and early and trying to make his uh, way through life and figure out what it meant to be a black man. And then that became exasperated by the experiences that he had as a police officer in Chicago. With all of that and us like coming to like a, a bit of an agreement about the the levels of anxiety that he had and post-traumatic stress disorder, police officers need more services. You cannot be out here with people's lives in your hands. And you're all hypervigilant, yep. Yeah. So I think that um, that's something that I don't even with their uh, with my agreements with a lot of the programs with defund the police in ways that uh, that money could be spent more effectively. I think that more services for actual police officers should be in place and part of this this guise of reform they're trying to give us. I don't know how hopeful I am. I, I, I hope that we could actually get something. But even the reform just means that we're going to continue to exist in these oppressive sy- systems that are already there. I would like to see a full shift and more revolutionary thought into fixing this issue. But if they're going to give us scraps <laughs> for us to work with, I would like for mm-hmm. one of the scraps to be for some of these people to be able to sit down with somebody and work some of this stuff, stuff out because child ain't going to keep just shooting at me because you, you had a, a rough life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Preach. 
<laughs> okay, so last the last two um that I had left or even want to talk about was um Harriet and Laura, the two um main women in the family. I have nothing for Harriet. I just want her to, I feel that she is really, really in love with Carl. And I feel that she is really just searching for him to be the man that she married so many years ago. I agree. She's the steadfast, like she's the lead. Yeah, I think she is like the black, like the epitome of like black girl magic, you know, like she's just, she just rocks, you know? And despite all of the other things like that come with family, you know, and, and family dynamics and the issues within that. Um, she still, you know, maintained herself and, and took care of herself and tried her best to be fair, um, especially with Eddie and Laura. I know there was an episode about like them treating Laura different than Eddie because he's a guy and she's a girl. And, you know, Harriet, I think sometimes is like Carl's conscious at times where she's like reminding him, okay, honey, this is what this is, or okay, honey, this is why this is happening. So she she gave him balance. You know, I felt like she was the balance of the family. Um, and in order to do that, she had to be very self-aware and of her needs and what she needed. And she, there were so many episodes where she clearly articulated to Carl, this is what I need from you as my husband. These are my expectations of you as my partner. And you're not satisfying that right now. And so that's how she was able to maintain a, a little bit of herself in this and and, and getting her happiness. So I, I I just like to applaud her for being that that rock and the balance for the family. Yes, Harriet, do it, girl. And she <laughs> not only self-awareness, I feel like she had insight and a, a good view of the entire family because she was the one she actually took the entire family to um, a family session with a psychiatrist on one episode she and brought did. Steve and sure was did. like, I think that people, everyone is, we have all these issues and everyone's blaming Steve and it's not Steve's fault. And she really uh, did a good job of sharing exactly what Dr. Katie was saying earlier. Like, but he's done all of these good things. Yeah, he ended up tearing up the psychiatrist's office on the way out, but we learned a lesson before <laughs> he did that. <laughs> we did. And that's, and that's what I loved about Harriet, especially with Steve. Like she's just so gentle with him. When everyone else wanted to yell and fuss, she's just like, come on now, y'all. Y'all know this, Steve. Stop acting out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except for the time he left an octopus in her freezer. <laughs> but let's move on to Laura, who gave me the toughest time into which I'm still confused on. So I would like to hear what you guys have to uh, discuss about the apple of Steve Urkel's eye, Laura Lee Winslow. I have lots of thoughts, just none of them are concise. So I I wanted to work this out with (laughs) y'all. I mean, and it's hard because if you think about the seasons, right? I mean, unlike Carl, who's an adult the whole time, Mm -hmm. she's, she's, she's developing still. She's, and you know, she's an adolescent and gets into later adolescent, young adulthood as the seasons progress. And so, you know, I think that might be some of the reason why I'm even struck by like, is there a diagnosis? Even though I see her and Carl as being the least, you know, authentic, um, 
some of her issues were developmentally appropriate like some of the Mm -hmm. things that she was struggling with and going through were developmentally appropriate sometimes she was really like kind and forgiving and compassionate to Steve sometimes she was just really mean and self-centered but again she's a teenager and that's normal for them to not be able to see past themselves and what it is that they want and then the only thing that I just really didn't like is how much in the early seasons when they were young we were made to feel bad for Laura telling, like even the music would change. Like it was set up for us to feel bad for Urkel where he was pushed too far past Laura's boundaries. And like, it would make her look like she was the bad person and she had to come apologize to Steve. Cause there was one episode where they were like supposed to be a married couple for some school project. That's terrible. And I'm glad schools don't do that anymore. Um, But he, I guess gave her a ring and expected a kiss because they did this project and he gave her this here, this, this expensive ring. So now you owe me a kiss. And she was like, no. Mm -hmm. And then the music changed and he got all sad and looked back and then walked away. No, she said, no, she don't have to give you no kiss because you gave her a ring. That's not how this works. That is creepy and that is not okay. And girls, you do not have to give anybody anything because they give you anything. (laughs) (laughs) No one deserves your physicality. No one has rights to your body and your boundaries need to be respected at all times. And so that is the only thing where I didn't like where they tried to make her out to be the bad guy. But then there were times where she was the bad guy and she should feel bad for being as mean as she was. <laughs> so, yeah, um, with Laura, I kind of don't I I didn't give her a diagnosis again because, like you said, it matched her her developmental stages. Um, and how she was going to respond to them, like how any natural, like normal teenager would respond to, you know, a guy who is like over, like a nerd, you know, Mm -hmm. that is overly invested in you. And it's just kind of like, ew, you know, and it just like, it adds on to it because it's like, you're trying so hard. Ew. I know you're a good guy. Ew. So (laughs) (laughs) wait, do it again. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> gross. Like he has germs, he has cooties or something. So I think that's part of why I didn't really give her a diagnosis. And then like, you know, I think I would probably get more so like adjustment disorder, like adjusting to, you know, uh, just a growing into her phase. And, and I I thought about it for a moment, especially um, toward like the latter season um, okay. about... Um, Eddie and Laura still living with their parents, you know, um, and the impact that may have, and then Steve actually living with them. And so, um, maybe having to adjust to, um, living life on her own because her and Myra actually were looking into like becoming roommates, but she was about to kill her. So she had to leave. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, I, I could live with Myra neither. The girl was up at oh like five God. in the morning making nasty smoothies. I, yeah. Like, ill, like, <laughs> So, I'm making um, smoothies. <laughs> <laughs> I love that commercial. <laughs> so, I think um, I think it's appropriate for her to have these reactions um, to the relationships, but I think more so like now is like her self actualizing and like mm-hmm. beca- growing into being a woman and being independent because that was a that was an issue in one of those episodes of like feeling like I I can't make my own rules and I. Um, I have to always answer to somebody. And so her wanting her space, I could see that now, um, especially as they're growing up, that they're going to start wanting to kind of, you know, separate and and do their, separate from the family and do their thing. But um, Mm -hmm. I think she's having a hard time with that, especially, you know, with Stefan 
um, and everything. But I would that would be the the diagnosis for me is like adjustment disorder and adjusting to this new phase and time in her life where she's having to uh, learn about herself and self actualizing. Mm-hmm. I can see that because if you think about it, the whole I mean the whole series it's it's her and Urkel. Hmm her and Steve like she's he's consistently there and so you know it's like her barometer in terms of like she's always oscillating in terms of distance either closeness or moving far away from and 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 that being her her kind of her compass as to who she is like how far from the extreme am I or how close in terms of Urkel and his nerdiness right she studies with them and she uses them in that way um with the aptitude but she's this cheerleader and has to put on this persona and so yeah, even though I pegged her and Carl as being both the least authentic, I would say hers is more developmentally appropriate, where Carl is definitely diagnosable. Hers is like one to like be mindful of and to to see how she, you know, maybe needs supports later on. Like, as you said, like as these relationships evolve, as she has to work through who am I um, in a new way, uh, you know, what does that mean for her and what, what to do with her then? Yeah. Yeah, I think that the only... Um... I don't see her even, well, possibly. I could see her and um, Steve possibly seeking out treatment, like maybe some premarital counseling. And that would be a good time to address the fact that she has used him for all of these years for different things. And Mm -hmm. um, this kind of hero complex that he has for her. There were multiple times where he had to come and like save the day or where there was a school shooting. He was like acting like her bodyguard. And while Steve, you know, had all of these... um, he had like lots of quirks about him. Um, he always made sure to protect her and he stood up to lots of bullies. Steve won't no punk. Now, let me tell you, whenever somebody was doing something wrong or it came to a fight, Steve was with stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was not no coward. And so there were multiple times where he um, had to come in and rescue her, even to the um, sometimes detriment to himself. Like he would get beat up or he would put himself in danger in order to protect or save her. And so part of that was he did care about her. She, she, he viewed her, even if she wasn't um, agreeing with his advances, they were still friends. And so he still saw himself as this is my friend. I still need to be there for this person. I still need to protect this person. That is something though that I would want to address a little bit. And you know, if we're going to all sit down together. But that wraps up Uh, I guess, Laura, I have one more thing that I just want y'all to um, bear with me because you know how I make stuff up in my mind if they don't tell us what really happened. And so I want y'all's opinion. Do y'all think, follow me for a second, that Rachel was suffering from substance abuse? And that's why they had Richie. I felt like maybe possibly Robert, her husband, might have they was getting high together. And so Robert died from a drug overdose. And then she came to live with the Winslows. Oh, and while she, you know, she got back on her feet. <laughs> and then, you know, she was doing good. She had Rachel's place. And then all of a sudden, Ain't nobody work at Rachel's place no more. Everybody went to the uh, the weenie place owned by the white man. And Rachel was just gone, but Richie was still there because, you know, she just wasn't at a place where she could take care of herself and Richie. And then she would come back from time to time where she would get herself, you know, clean enough to be around. But then she just disappeared again. Does she have to be a drug addict, though? I mean, can't she just be okay. just be a mom who maybe like that all happened? And she realized okay, so that she was, doesn't have to be a drug was, dealer. That he was better served with again thinking about community, I mean, right? If we're, yes. if we're breaking, if we're breaking through the westernized notions of family and and individualism, we're thinking really, you know, relationally and community wise. Mm-hmm. Like, 
is that such a wrong thing if if I'm, you know, living with my family and I have my my child here and then it gets mm-hmm. to a point where I have to move because my business is, you know, failing. Um, so instead well, her of business was doing good. That's why it don't make no sense to be. I'm like, Rachel's place was doing good. Everybody had jobs. Everybody was working. Y'all recovered from when the gang came in and tore up your stuff. In business, everybody wasn't nobody scared. Everybody was doing good. Okay, so she don't have to be a drug addict. I'll take that drug addict. Okay, so maybe she was struggling with Robert's death. He don't have to die from a drug overdose. He just die. Niggas get shot every day, B. All right, so that happens. And... Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. like a paid a full reference, but uh, so did that happens and she's struggling. And the Winslows, being the 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 family that they are, Richie was already there. He already was in school. That does happen a lot. Well, he already in school here. You might as well just let him stay. But it just, I need them to explain stuff. You can't just be taking people away and not tell me what happened. Like you ain't tell me what happened to Judy. You ain't tell me what happened to Rachel. Grandma was sometimes here. Sometimes she was off with the three different Fletchers that they had cast for him. One time he was Grady from Sanford and Son. It just, I need explanations. You can't leave my mind to wander like this. Courtney, are you, are you dealing with unresolved grief? I am. Are I need you, to know what happened to Rachel. with unresolved grief? I am. And only the writers can serve it. I need I need a reunion episode. It don't have to be a reboot. I don't uh, need a reboot. But I, I need say, like I don't a know. closure. I need a closure episode. I need them to tell me what happened. You know okay, that's life, me. though. You're a school counselor. You know that's <laughs> life. You know that's how it played out in the schools, though. It always we have happens. Our kiddos. We, we I work with them for so there. long, and then yep. they move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or their cousins would be with them one time, and then the next the school, you know, they would be enrolled in a different school in a different neighborhood and be gone and then come back. Yeah, you know how this goes. I think you're I know, reliving it hurts. unresolved grief. It yeah. hurts. That's why I need closure in my in my in my fun times in my television shows. I need there to be a, a ending. Okay, so no happy ending for for Courtney today. If you would like to support the show to help us get more content out to you all, you can visit the website and follow the support the show link to become a Patreon member or donate on our cash app. Now we're happy to get the kind of money that jingles, but we would rather the kind that folds. As always, be sure to follow us on Instagram at the DSM podcast and you can subscribe to our show wherever you get podcasts. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a comment because we are counselors and we actually care about what you have to say. So until next time, y'all, peace. Peace. Okay, bye.